Good morning. So glad to be here with you guys today. Uh, as Randy said, uh, for those that do not know me, my name is James Daniels. If you're trying to recognize that certain dialect I have, I am an Arkansan. And uh, one of the things that uh, I'm known for in Arkansas is uh, taking the most beautiful wife in the world with me as I left. Uh, she could not be here today uh, because uh, I was actually at Presbytery earlier in the week and my daughter would have had to skip school, and she would have liked that, but her mom wasn't keen on the idea. And so if my uh, bow tie is a little crooked today, it's because my better half is not here to adjust it for me right before I walked up to the pulpit. I had a friend that said, if, you, uh, if you're tying your own bow tie, make sure that it's a little bit crooked anyway so people know it's not a clip-on and they can, <laughs> they can brag on you for, for tying the bow tie. Uh, but again, I'm thankful to be here. Uh, Randy mentioned earlier that I am planning uh, a church in Chelsea. Uh, it's been one of the most daunting tasks of my life. It's taken uh, a lot of um, prayers by folks like you, a lot of encouragement. Uh, Randy and his family have been so encouraging to me. Randy has spent an enormous amount of time mentoring me, being there for me. I want to thank you for that, Randy. And this church has played a huge part, and I don't know to what degree you know, but uh, y'all have been significant in providing support we are uh, actually on target for October, first Sunday in October, to launch our first worship service. And I hope that you feel, like I do, that where there was no church, churches like you have supported and encouraged uh, and put forth financial support prayers to make it happen for a church that maybe eventually could be something like this that will stand for generations to come. Thank you for that, and thank you for the role that you've played in that way. And also, uh, thank you for um, allowing me to come back and preach to you guys again. Randy, thank you for that opportunity. Uh, starting this week, we'll have uh, discipleship uh, Bible studies every single uh, Wednesday. And I've still got some folks in Chelsea that are really starting to want to do a gathering, whether it be Sunday evening or something like that. So we're going to see how it goes in the next few months. Uh, my ordination will be uh, is still on schedule to be finished up in September. And so all uh, signs are pointing to go for the church plant. And uh, as, a, as I said before, keep me in your prayers. Uh, thank you for your prayers and thank you for your support in that. Today we're going to be talking about uh, a sermon I've entitled Father of the Bride, uh, God's plan for unity in the church. And we're going to be looking at Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. Ephesians 4, 1 through 16. If you find it, uh, if you please stand if you're able um, as we read this passage. Ephesians 4.1 begins, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Now, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? 
He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that, and by, uh, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when the part is working properly, makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. May God bless the reading of his inerrant and inspired word. Let us pray. Father God, use these words to penetrate our hearts, soften our hearts. Uh, help us uh, this morning to pay attention to what you are saying uh, through the words that are spoken in your word. Thank you for the grace you give us. Thank you for the unity you promise. Uh, may you grant us peace and love. And it's in Christ's name, amen. Now you may have noticed, I tried to be a little clever with the title there by naming it Father of the Bride. Whether you uh, have, are familiar with the Steve Martin Father of the Bride that uh, came out in 1991 or the old Father of the Bride that actually came out in 1950, both the plots are the same. Uh, the 91 had Steve Martin in it. Uh, the one in 1950 had Spencer Tracy and Elizabeth Taylor in it. But the plots are still the same. Uh, both stories uh, are, are the same story of a father who is taken aback by his daughter's coming of age uh, and her decision to get married. And he begins to realize in his naivety, uh, in his um, planning for her future, and his everyday misguided vision of the ways that, that things would play out, uh, he realizes that all of those things were inadequate. And as the, the story goes on uh, and the marriage takes on uh, drama and it takes on more money than he ever thought it would cost, he begins to see things unravel before his eyes. Um, and, and it reminds me a lot of, of what we're seeing in, uh, in, in today's world when I, when I think about kind of the vision that we all have for whatever it might be for the future, uh, our own future, or the future of America, or, or the future of the world, or world peace, or, and the hope of the restoration. Whatever your vision for the way things should be, it seems like nowadays, before our eyes, more so than ever from our perspective, that uh, there's more divisiveness. There's more arguments. There's more turmoil right now, whether it's uh, earthquakes that we're seeing, whether it's uh, the political um, um, debacle that we're kind of seeing unfolding in some ways, division, uh, partisanism. But, it, but as Christians, this shouldn't, shouldn't surprise or shock us. Uh, we know all of creation and all of the world is broken and fallen, and this puts creation in tension, especially when it comes to human beings. Romans 8, 19, 22 reminds us that all of creation, right, is in tension and frustrated and longing for the day that we can be restored and harmony can be reestablished. And that's what our hearts long for. And as we see this tension and friction more explicitly among human beings, uh, think about how many opportunities, even in this room, that we would have to disagree, whether it be political issues, whether it be even 
um, doctrinal issues at times, politics, sports, opinions, emotions, uh, different disagreements that we might have around taste and likes and what we wear and fashion and things of that nature, uh, food preferences. I mean, when you think about it, it's a wonder that we, any of us, ever find commonality at all. And this is, uh, reminds me of something I was talking to my wife about one day. And you, you guys have all experienced this. When you, when you have something that you're trying to say to your wife that you feel like is noble but it doesn't quite fit. Let me give you an illustration here. So my wife and I were uh, having a disagreement. We had different opinions, let's say this, on an issue. And um, we were talking about, we, we kind of elaborated and said, I can't believe you think that differently about this. And, and I said, you know what? We're, we're not alike in a lot of ways. Matter of fact, and I said this in my naivety, I said, matter of fact, if we didn't love each other so much, we would never get along. Now, I thought I was saying something that was an expression of how much I loved her <laughs> and how deep, how deep our marital vows went. She took it as, you really don't like me. <laughs> and then I tried to parse out the difference between liking your preference and liking you, but for ladies, it was apparently one and the same. So I'm still figuring that out, but y'all, y'all know how it feels. And, and so not only does the, does the world... Are we, are we all uh, relationally and, and as human beings and, and the world's in, in tension and conflict? But also, uh, you know, there's so many people posing answers, whether it's uh, phrases like, can't we all just get along? And we all know that, no, <laughs> we can't. Or talking about, can we just coexist? Um, or can we uh, play down our differences and just all become one in some oneness? Or... Maybe the answer is that we all celebrate our diversity. But all of the answers that are given, we, we know at some root level, they're unsatisfying. And they don't work over a long term. And so uh, Randy's been talking about the last few weeks the, this idea of union with Christ. And uh, there's been the, the recurring theme of abiding in Christ and, and the redemption uh, that we have in Christ that makes it possible to be not only reconciled with, with God, but reconciled with one another. Now, the, the, the spiritual temperament of my town, of Chelsea, is probably similar in some ways to, to Huntsville and anywhere else. Now, there's definitely people uh, in Chelsea, like in Huntsville, that we would consider unchurched people. But there's another category in the church planning world that people are calling uh, de-churched folks. That would be folks that, for some reason, would still claim to love God, love Jesus, but they're disenfranchised with the church as an institution. Right? Have you all noticed that? a lot of those folks nowadays, right? Probably more in kind of a post-Christian society that, that we're kind of becoming in America. You're seeing that more and more. Now, on one hand, we think, uh, how can you love Jesus but not love his bride? That's kind of what we say. That's the churchy answer, right, that we have. But also we know, on the other hand, that we can understand why people can be disenfranchised with the church because church people, like everyone else, are broken, they have difference of opinions. Uh, and we get frustrated sometimes because maybe the, the, the conflicts we have among the church, the church folks should know better. And so maybe it's not just that we, we, we understand uh, in, a, in a deep way why someone would be frustrated with, with humanity as a whole, but we also understand uh, the church. So how in this uh, state can we actually pursue unity? Uh, if you look in your sermon notes, I've got a quote in here uh, by Professor D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson once stated that Christians are a band of natural enemies 
who have come to love each other for Jesus' sake. Christians are a band of natural enemies who have come to love each other for Jesus' sake. But how is this possible? Now, we understand the idea that, that, that Jesus has made this possible. Uh, let, let's try to bring it down a little bit and, and, and think about how I, uh, Christ must feel about this. If I had someone that came to me and said, James, we have a deep friendship. I love you. I think the world of you. Uh, and I want to continue to, to be in a friendship with you. But I really just can't stand your wife. And matter of fact, can I just hang out with you and never uh, be with your family or your wife? How would it, how would it make you feel? Uh, because at the end of the day, you have to say, how, would I, how do I perceive that person's love and relationship really for me? Because I would say, listen, my wife and I, we're one flesh. We're unified, right? You can't, it, it doesn't come in, in two different packages. So today we're going to look at this uh, passage in Ephesians that gives God's plan and even insights, by the way, the pattern uh, of what God uh, has taken people from all work walks of life. And think about this. We're not talking about just people with different personalities here. We're talking about Gentiles and Jews. We're talking about people that were at enmity. How did Christ, how does this work make it possible that people can come from different uh, political backgrounds and, and, and national backgrounds and, and uh, civic backgrounds and bring them all together? Uh, in, the, in the sermon notes, it says that Ephesians has two themes centered on the work of Christ and how that work is made it possible for us to be unified with not only Christ but with one another. There's two things in, in Ephesians, that we're unified with Christ and therefore unified with one another. Today I want to expand on this with uh, three ideas. Uh, there's three points that we're going to make today. One is the call for unity that we see here in the passage. The second one's going to be the need for diversity, the need for the diversity. And the last one's going to be the resulting harmony that comes as you not only have unity but also diversity. And it's woven together in a beautiful harmony. Let's see, how, let's see how, uh, what God's plan as the father of the bride, has for unity within the church. Let's look at verse uh, um, 1 through 4, I mean 1 through 6 here. Uh, let's start with verse 1. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner uh, of the calling to which you have been called. Here Paul is uh, exhorting the people in Ephesus and saying, uh, therefore, now the ver- therefore, uh, and you've heard the whole cliche, if you see a therefore in scripture, you've got to know what it's there for. Uh, And and most of the time, therefores come at the end of a thought. Paul is notorious for using therefores because a lot of his letters are not just letters uh, that we think about nowadays when I write a letter and email it to someone. These are really, uh, these epistles were written to the church to be read in front of the congregation. And so they're read kind of like an oration. uh, And and Paul thinks a lot like a a lawyer. Uh, He builds court cases. Uh, almost, when you look at the rhetoric of it. He's, he's laying down these propositions. Now, here in uh, Ephesus, he's already, he's already talked about, in the preceding chapters of, of Ephesians, he's already talked about a couple of things. Uh, one is union with Christ, and how is that made by reconciling? Uh, most of you guys are, are familiar with a lot of passages in, in uh, Ephesians that talk about, by grace you're saved, and how is this possible that you can have God and, and man who is an enemy of God? How can that ever be? Well, it's by the grace of God, by Christ's work on the cross. And he talks about this. But the therefore here that Paul's talking about is, now let me tell you and bring it down to practically this is what it looks like in everyone's life. I've given you kind of the theology. I've given you the purpose and why, right, that what we see. But what is the practical application of this? And so verse 2 we see 
and, and he's asking us to, to walk the walk in, of our calling. And he says, how? With all humility, gentleness, and patience, and bearing one another in love. And so he said, walk in the manner of your calling. What's our calling? Our calling is uh, to Christ, to God, and on the, on the work, through the work of Christ, to pursue our lives in the church as the people of God, in the household of God. But what he says right after that is the characteristics will look like humility, gentleness, patience, and bearing one another in love. Right? It didn't say loving people that are lovable, but bearing one another in love. Sometimes in love you have to bear with people. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm glad my wife through the silly things like what I said previously to her. She bears with me through that. But these are counterintuitive to Paul's world. Paul's in the Roman Empire. The, the Greco-Roman world um, was, was exalted the man that could stand with authority, right? That could, that could come out and be the, the, the wise sayer of sayings and take control and take charge. Those were the emperors. Those were the people that led the republic. It's not a far cry from what we think about in America and how you control the world today. Because we, just like Paul's world, exalt the vocal, the competent, the prideful, the opinionated, the people that have the take charge mentality. That's who who we say those people are going to get it done. But we've also experienced this, and we know this would be practically true in our lives. The more you struggle for control and try to take charge of situations, the more frustrated you become the more we tend to try to take control and control our destinies and our future and fix everybody around us, the more we're frustrated and the more we frustrate other people. Right? That's just a practical thing that we see uh, today. Paul's calling for the opposite. He said, you want to know how to unite people? You don't want to know that what Christ blesses to move and work restoration and to work unity and bring everyone in this room together? Humility, gentleness, Patience, bearing with one another in love. But, so, but, but to what end? What is Paul after here? What is he telling us? All right, we do that, but how do we know we're moving toward where we should move toward? What is success by way of, of what Christ measures and not the world measures? Well, he answers this in verse 3. When you look at verse 3, he said, Eager, the people in the church are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. The bond of peace. Last week, uh, my wife and daughter and I went to see the new Jungle Book movie. I don't know if any of you guys have seen that. It was actually pretty well done. And for you guys that may have sentimental visions of how Disney did it and liked a couple of songs, they kept the nice little song and dance numbers that everybody loved. But at the same time, they stayed a little bit more true to the original work that uh, Rudyard Kipling wrote. Uh, I've always liked Rudyard Kipling, uh, whether it be Ricky Ticky Tavi or The Jungle Book. I've liked his style of writing. He has good narrative here. But there's a, there's a scene in the movie that the movie reminded me of, the new movie, that wasn't in the Disney version, uh, of course. All the best scenes are always left out of the Disney version, if you haven't noticed that, right? But uh, in the, and there's a section, uh, a chapter called um, uh, The Dry Season in the Jungle, and then there's one after this called The Water Truce. And in this section uh, of the book, see that the, there, there have been a drought. For some of you guys that don't remember the Jungle Book, it's about Mowgli. Mowgli's raised by a pack of wolves. 
He, he was lost uh, as a young man, and I won't spoil all of it. If you don't remember the story, you can go back and read it. But, but something happened that, that, that left him as an orphan. He was raised by wolves. And, um, and in the jungle at this time, Mowgli's kind of coming of age and becoming aware of his surroundings, becoming aware that he's human. And so we're seeing all this happen. And the jungle's uh, experiencing a drought. And when they do, there's one little part of the river that's really left. And, and in this river, at the deepest point of the river that's almost gone, a rock appears that they call Peace Rock. And Peace Rock was a, was a part of this jungle law that they had passed down through folklore for generation to generation. When the Peace Rock appeared, all bets were off and all animals had to come and in harmony and could not hunt each other, could not prey upon each other, predators and prey alike had to come together in this because that's the only way that the animals were going to survive. Now, you might say that's a nice story. By the way, if you've ever watched Animal Planet and National Geographic and seen some of this, this actually does happen in nature. When animals are at their most desperate, uh, they, they see them at watering holes, uh, uh, you know, a, a lion by a, a gazelle. This actually really happens in the world. But in the book, they, they, they talk about this, and, and um, this is how it's described. It said, never once and never all in one place did you see predators and prey all drinking from the same watering hole at the same time. Wow, said Mowgli, amazed. Animals piled almost on top of each other, vying for a spot at the watering hole. And in spite of their desperation that he saw uh, in their eyes, something was beautiful about it. And Mowgli goes on when he, uh, talking about this and saying, no one seemed to mind or even take notice of how exceptional it all was. They didn't really care. But to Mowgli, that made it all more possible. He said he wondered what the jungle would be like if its animals, its people, behave like this all the time. And so when you see this truce, this commitment that they made in peace and they, all the animals came together, um, that, that it wasn't that they became less of individuals by doing that, but of giving up some of these things, it becomes a more beautiful picture of what could be. And we see this in Scripture. Uh, when it talks about the, 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 the wolves and the lamb lay down together, right? Uh, the same idea is here. And so we, we look and our hearts long for the day, like, what if we can, we can coexist and, and, and be in harmony with one another in that? But how is this kind of peace even possible? Well, for the animals, it was we're going to give up of our own appetites, our own preferences, and for a moment, we're going to commit to a higher cause. But for Christians, what does this look like? Well, Paul talks about the idea... Uh, in the next verses. Verse 4, he says, There's one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Verse 6, one God, Father of all, who is over all and uh, who is through all and in all. Now, there's two aspects you need to notice here. Uh, the repetition of the one, right? We have, we have one, uh, one body, one spirit, one Lord, one faith. In the Bible, when you see this kind of reputa uh, repetition, it's always for emphasis. You, you know the uh, phrases in the Bible that says, holy, holy, holy? That doesn't mean that we're going to be around the throne chanting holy. Right? It means we're going to be enamored. We're talking about holy upon holy upon holy. That's the emphatic uh, expression here when you see repetition. But here you don't even just see it three times or four times. Six times this oneness is mentioned. Now, but this is the difference between a church and a social club. Right here, what we're talking about. See, in a social club or uh, some club that you're usually a part of, you, you unite around your own preferences. 
your own interest and likes. The church has the audacity to say, we can take people from any background and, and, and through the work of Christ, they're united. And so it's not only that um, we see a repetition of this oneness, this unity. The second part of that is that, that it talks about the idea that God permeates all this. All the things mentioned here, did you notice, are outside of ourselves. Things that were given to us by the divine to make it possible. Because left up to our own, we couldn't do that. And that's why uh, in, the, in the, uh, the sermon notes that you may have, the key to unity, the key to unity is keeping the focus of our relationship on divine things more than ourselves. The key to unity in the church is to keep our focus and our priority on the divine things and off of ourselves, instead of ourselves. Now we're talking about the moment that it doesn't mean you're less of a person, and the longer it actually means you're more of an individual, or more of your potential that, that you should be through the way that Christ has masterfully, uh, God has masterfully done this through Christ. We're united by something holy. We're united by something divine. God in three persons, one spirit, one Lord. All of these are deep-rooted. But then the second thing, and this is also in your sermon notes, the unique reality of the church is that if you submit to this oneness, if you submit to these divine unifying things, you end up reaching more of your potential as an individual than you ever could imagine. More of your potential as an individual, more than you can imagine. Why? Because we're not made to live alone. Just by communion, all in, the, in our hearts and souls of each one of them, we have a longing for communion, a longing for uh, something that would make us whole. Christ has done such a work. You need union with Christ, but you also need communion and union with others. And without union and communion with others in the church, you are becoming less of a human being. It's dehumanizing to live alone. It's dehumanizing. Loneliness is one of the worst experiences of the human existence. We're made for communion. So not only that, let's look at uh, the, the next section. Not only the call for unity, but the need for diversity. This is in 7 through 13. This is when he talks about the idea of, uh, in verse 7, but grace is given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he held host to the captives. And then it talks about this idea of ascending and descending and ascending again. And it sounds kind of like a philosopher or something that says, this is, this is a pulpit, but it's not a pulpit. It's not a philosopher's trick here Paul's doing. Paul's talking about, you realize the way this was made possible, Christ was on the throne he leaves the throne room of heaven he descends to the earth he does his work here for our sake but then he ascends back to the throne right when it says he leaves cap, uh, host of captives and give gifts it's calling it's actually quoting from uh, psalm 68 psalm 68 is a, a psalm that talks about the ascending if you view the temple mount when the king went out and he took captive the enemies of israel the enemies of god and when he came back Victorious, He would bestow gifts to the people, the spoils of war. Now, we heard uh, Legan Duncan, the uh, pastor, uh, first president uh, Jackson, right, uh, for, he was, right, at one time, head of RTS now, thank you. Um, we heard him speak on this pa- uh, passage actually yesterday, and I thought after I heard him speak, I'm like, I'm going to throw my sermon out and just preach his, and I was like, no, I got convicted about being plagiarism. That always gets in my way. Uh, especially as a principal for a school so many years I take plagiarism I have deep convictions about plagiarism Uh, but the um, one of the things that he said it's amazing what are these gifts that he's talking about well look at verse 11 he gave the apostles 
prophets, the evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. The gifts are people. What are the gifts that Christ gives us? By grace, yes, through faith. But the gifts are people to shepherd over us, to watch over us, to lead us. And we know at a certain level we all have gifts to the body, uh, that to contribute to the body. The work that the church is called to is an enormous task. Christ, when he says, go and, and teach all the nations, he said, all authority has been given to me. You go out and go. And he gives the great commission to the church. He's saying nothing less than total transformation of the world, restoration. Now, we don't know what all that looks like, but it is restorative hope. It does make a difference in community. It does unite all the, all the world under uh, Christ in, in unity. But he also talks about, and when you look at the lists like these in the Bible, you've got to be very careful because this is not prescribing certain gifts that every church should have. It's describing the type of gift that over the course of time Christ has given to us. And not only are these gifts, uh, this is another thing Lincoln Duncan said I thought was awesome. Not only are these gift people, but they're given to the congregation so the congregation can do the work, not the elders and the shepherds and the teachers. That's just a part of the work. They're here to serve you as the congregation, to equip you to unify and to work and, and contribute to this. And why are we doing this? Verse 12 and 13 uh, tells us to equip the saints for ministry, to build up the body of Christ until we all attain unity and maturity. Why? So we can all become the potential of who we were made to be in the image of God. We were made for glory. And one day we will be glorified completely in heaven. But the process now is becoming more human. Jesus said, I've come that you have life and have life abundantly. Christianity doesn't call you to give up for yourself. It says temporarily submit who you are as an individual so that in the end you can be free and be the human being and the potential of who God has called you to be. We need diversity. We need people in the church that are artists and musicians and accountants and lawyers. We need all the gifts that you have. Right? There's a, a need for diversity in the church. But it also means the converse. That is, if you or me or anyone else in this room that's in a position of authority or in a position that, that Christ has given us a gift, and if it leads to a judgmental spirit by you or other people in the church, divisiveness in the church, if it leads to those things versus unity and equipping and pointing others to Christ, then either you're mistaken about the gift you have or you're misusing it. I've never seen a time in Christianity where I have seen more people that have been given the gift of prophecy to speak truth in people's lives that have been so unkind and unloving. And I say, that's a misuse of a gift or you really don't have the gift in the first place. Truth does not divide. Truth unites. Now, it can be hard for temporarily for a time, and I'm not saying that. But we're going to see the affirmation of this in the very last point here. So it's not only a, not only a call for unity, not only a need for diversity in the church, but also there's a resulting harmony that just like someone at a loom that's unraveling all this thread, when all the components of the loom is working, what's coming out on the other side? This beautiful tapestry that, that was more than we would ever imagine from the, the unraveling of those spools. And so the, here's the last point here, the resulting harmony. Here's an affirmation of what I just said. So that we may no longer be children tossed about to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunningness, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Look at verse 15. Rather speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way in Christ who is the head from whom the whole body joined together, held together when it is equipped, is working properly 
makes the body grow so it builds itself up in love. Truth is not an end of itself in Christianity, right? Why does doctrine exist? For love. Why does truth exist? For love. Not only that, but truth for a Christian is not doctrine, ultimately. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth. Truth for a Christian is a person. And how do you interact with a person? In love, rightly. Truth is a means to love. When truth in the, truth in the Christian church, whether we're speaking out as some moral majority in politics or, we're, or we're, we're sharing with a friend, any truth we speak, if we can't do it in a motivation of love, then why are we speaking it? Because truth, the culmination of all these things is love. Now, to end here, we have this idea of the resulting harmony, this idea that we, we can, by the hope of Christ, live in harmony with one another. And uh, I always know when I come to church here, I'm going to be, uh, my soul is going to be nourished by some of the most beautiful music I see in any church. Uh, and for you guys that spend a lot of time, sacrifice a lot of practice time uh, for the music, the music here is unbelievable. It, it nourishes my soul. I leave so excited about that. I've always loved harmony, uh, the beauty of it. I've, since I was a boy in a rural church, when we had the little shape notes and, and uh, all the four-part harmonies of, of the, the gospel that we sang there, or a piece uh, that I see by Bach or Mozart when they, when they put notes just in a little bit in tension, and then they resolve it in the end, you're like, ah. It's so refreshing. Or for some of you that may love jazz, jazz is notorious for using dissonance, notes and tension, and then weaving that together like, ah, oh, that's how that plays out. That's what it looks like people kind of impromptu, but they come together in a oneness here. And we always talk about creation as the harmony of the spheres. When we look around there, there's things that Christ has embedded in harmony. And when we think about the idea of everyone in this room coming together, united, and loving one another, and bearing one another. And, and it, we begin to see a vision that, that is more than we ever dared to imagine that it could be. And we're all a part of the divine plan that calls for that. Now, the last section in your, uh, your sermon notes uh, says, not only has he called you and me to be a part of the divine plan, but he has equipped us. Not only has he called us to be a part of that, but he has equipped us by the grace and the work of Christ. There's times when we're going to be like, I can't do this on my own. You're not made to do it on your own. I just can't love that person. No, you can't. But Christ did and gave you the grace to love that person. See, the father of the bride not only loves his church, but he wants it to become more harmonious and more beautiful and more loving. And not only did he call us to that, but he has uniquely equipped every single person in this room and this church here in Central Press to be a part of that work, right? He's called all of us to be a part of that divine plan through Christ's death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascending to the throne, and giving the gifts to the people that we need to build each other up, build the church up, to build the work up of the world and to work restoration in a broken and divisive world. One God, one Christ, one spirit, one hope. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that we do not have to do this on our own. When we think about the, uh, what we see in the world uh, and we see our neighbors and, and the people that maybe we're in tension with, uh, maybe it's been year-long year long tension. Maybe it's been years of tension within the church, without the church, and we look at the world around us and we think, how are we ever going to, as a civilization, repair these fabrics? We begin to realize that we can't. But you've got a plan for that. And we don't know the mystery of how that's going to play out, but we do know that you are making all things new through the hope that we have in Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.